Uh, we are uh, continuing to remember those who uh, aren't able to join us because they're uh, sick or not sure if they're sick or they're waiting for tests. Or uh, We're also reminded of the fact that there are other things out there besides COVID, like injuries and other things that are going on and uh, pull us away from being able to meet, at least for the time being. But let's pray. Let's pray for those who can't be here with us in person, but let's pray for uh, each of us, all of us, that we would be uh, ready to accept what the Lord has to say to us today from Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we recognize that we need Your grace. We pray that as we do that, seeking it in Your Word and not anywhere else, uh, that we would find it. We wouldn't leave here thinking that we can empower ourselves or fix things ourselves or do things without your grace, far be it from us to presume that we can rise to some challenge in our own strength. So help us reckon with our weakness, turn to you for what we need to live according to what you give us in your word. So we lean on you for it. Give us eyes to see what you have to say even in the obscure crevices of Scripture, the dusty portions of your word that we don't frequent often, that we pass by, and help us to see you there. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, am I, am I on? I, I know I had the, all right, come on. <laughs> so we continue our trek through the book of Numbers. It's about a journey. And as you look through the book of Numbers, uh, you will be confronted with not just passages that are hard to get what's going on, they're sometimes weird, and today we're going to see a strange passage. You, you might be like, I've, I'm not sure I've ever seen that there before, or maybe we have and we didn't quite pay attention, it's confusing, and we just kind of move past it really quickly. But mainly, what's difficult is when we're confronted with sort of the off-putting passages of Scripture, the ones that are kind of dark, uh, shows that there's a distance between us and God. And that might seem discouraging at first. Wow, God is kind of separate and other, and there's fences and there's borders, and the Levites are there to keep people from dying if they get too close, and to touch God's holiness as an unholy person is to die. You know, that's hard to grapple with, but what we can miss in that is that God wants to be with us. <laughs> it wouldn't be a dangerous thing if there wasn't proximity. It wouldn't be an issue if God wasn't dwelling there in the camp amidst His people. So what we have to grapple with, the tension, is that there is a tension, right? The fact that God wants to be with us but can't be with us. He wants us to be in relationship to Him, but we can't be in relationship to Him. He wants us to draw near, but we can't get near. And he wants us to see that tension, but in that tension we can't lose the fact that the whole reason why there's even tension there is because God is a missionary God who stoops down and gets down in there to dwell with his people and makes a way to be with his people, but it's not because they're worthy. It's not because they're holy enough for it. So there's the rub. So when we read passages like we saw last week in the first four chapters of Numbers, and as we'll continue to see today in chapter 5, we see this distance, but God communicating in that distance that he's making a way. Let's look at Numbers chapter 5. 
We're going to do all of chapter 5 today. And it comes to us in three chunks. We're going to take it one chunk at a time. Two small chunks and then a big, really weird, uh, perhaps off-putting at first uh, passage of Scripture. The first two will feel a little familiar because the first two are sort of recaps of Leviticus. And we walked through Leviticus uh, not long ago. It's a lot of laws and a lot of rules communicating that God is holy and, and his people aren't. And even though they have been rescued out of Egypt, there's still a gap. We're still not perfect. And he communicates that through numerous ways. And one of the ways he would do that is through communicating that there are ways in which people are unclean. And that's what he does in verses 1 through 4. These four verses capture a lot of what we see in long swaths of Scripture in Leviticus, but here it's like a brief recap. It's an encapsulated form. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So you've got this camp that's buffered be, uh, from uh, God's dwelling place in the tent with the Levites, but you're not even allowed to be in that camp if you are unclean. You've touched a dead body, you've got uh, a disease of various kinds. Leprosy there represents all kinds of skin diseases. And there's a practical level to it. Because, uh, you know, as I was preparing this message, I thought, wow, I guess one of the blessings of this whole COVID thing is we get quarantining a little bit more than we would have had we not. You know, I don't know how many generations we'd have to go back to really get it the way we're getting it now, but the entire idea of like, hey, we don't hate you, but you need to stay away from us for two weeks or whatever, you know, you have to constantly check what they're saying because it changes, but whatever. Quarantining is a thing because of the communicable nature of disease. If you don't put this person out of the camp, it can spread to other people in the camp. That's part of what's happening here, but that's not the main reason what's happening here. There's a greater thing that this is pointing to. So was there a practical reason for quarantining diseased people? Yeah, obviously. But notice what he says in verse 3. He doesn't say because other people can catch it. He says you put them outside of the camp so that they don't defile the camp. And what he means by defiled is making other people unclean ritually, not necessarily in a physical way. Why would they defile the camp? Because I dwell there, he says at the end of verse 3. Because I dwell there. And so, again, we don't want to miss the fact that God could just be like, I'm done with planet Earth. I'm going to go do something else. I still have angels, right? But he goes in and dwells in a place where there even has to be offense. So what he's communicating through the unclean thing, and of course, if you think back to our time in Leviticus, there were sort of three levels, things that are unclean, things that are clean, things that are holy. And the unclean things can't be near the holy things. And so the unclean people, whether it be through a disease, whether it be through contact with the dead, were put outside of the camp. And then, where's the verse? that talks about how they can get back inside the camp. <laughs> it's not there. Are they just stuck out there? Who knows? Are th is there any hope of getting healed? Is there any hope of being back inside the camp? Well, I think what this is talking about is not, here's how Israel figured out diseases. What this is doing is explaining, here's how God dwells with his people 
but his people can't really touch him. That's a bigger issue. It's not trying to answer the questions of how they healed things, how do they fix things, how do they know a skin disease was totally gone, how do they know it's even a skin disease or if they just bump something and it's just a red spot on the arm. No, it's just four short verses that represent something deeper and it's not giving us clinical evidence as to how they dealt with physical ailments. Why? Because it's bigger than the physical ailment. Were there other ways of being unclean? Yes. This is just representing the fact of uncleanness. And what is helping us recognize is our ability to be in the camp isn't always up to us. And he's not pointing to just egregious sins. If you murder somebody, if you do something obvious and egregious, then you have to be outside the camp. No, this, I, didn't, I can't help that I caught this disease. I can't help that my skin broke out in a rash. I can't help that my spouse killed over and died and I try to help them. Oops, they were dead. I touched a dead body. Was I supposed to do something different? No, you weren't supposed to do something different. You have to be outside the camp. Right? There seems like to be an unfairness to it. And that's why it starts with that. We tend to look at lists of things like we sung about. Look at a list. that I do that? I didn't do that. I must be good. So God is using uncleanness to demonstrate it's, it's bigger than individual instances of sin. It's also about sinfulness. It's also about our nature, our fallen nature that separates us from God. And we need something outside of ourselves to have any hope of getting inside the camp. And of course, what this leaves open-ended, what this leaves as a question mark, what this leaves as mystery, we know the answer. If we're outside of the community of God, how does anybody get inside the community of God? Jesus has to take your disease upon himself so that you can be clean. So this is projecting the problem so that we can long for the answer, and of course the answer is Christ. Now he moves in the next paragraph, quickly in verses 5 through 10, into specific instances of sin. And the, the kind of sin that he goes after, you'll notice he doesn't cover even the Ten Commandments, the sins that are listed in the Ten Commandments. It's not trying to cover every instance of sin, but a specific instance as an example to communicate this. If you're going to be in communion with me, God is saying, if you're going to have this vertical relationship with me, it needs to coincide with your horizontal relationship with other people. You don't get to dwell in my camp, in my community, and act like a jerk to people in that community and still be cool with me. If you're not cool with people that I'm cool with, you're not cool with me. That's what he's saying. So let's look at it in verses 5 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Now, let's pause there a second, because it starts by saying if any man or woman commits a sin that offends God, you need to make it right with the person you offended. Oh, so I need to make it right with God? He's like, no, the human person you offended. That's what he means when he says you need to make restitution, adding a fifth to it, giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Uh, am I giving money to God? No, you're giving money to a person. How do we know that for sure? Verse 8, if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, well, let's say you did something to somebody who maybe you 
hurt them, killed them, or they died, or something like that. There needs to be some next of kin for you to give that restitution to. He's talking about human people. The restitution for the wrong in that case, no next of kin, shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. So he's saying if there is no next of kin, then bring it to the temple, you'll give it to the Lord. What does that mean? If there is a next of kin, you give it to that human person. That means you don't get to hurt somebody else and take that sin to God and confess and be like, I worked it out with God. If God could get over it, why don't you get over it? No, you make it right. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. The horizontal has to be intact for the vertical to be intact. And God makes it clear throughout Scripture that if you say you love God but you hate your brother, guess what? You don't love God. You're not in. So some of us, as zealous as we are to do Godward things, as much as we read the Bible and play our worship music on Spotify and have our devotional time, but we're jerks toward other people, all that stuff you're doing in private, it's not real. It's real when it's proven in how you behave with other people. And that doesn't mean you'll always get it right. It means that when you get it wrong, you make it right. So some of you in here this morning might have something to fix with somebody else. And you've been excusing it because you took it privately to God in prayer. And that's not enough. You need to go out and make things right with people whom you've hurt. You always won't be able to make restitution It doesn't give us the specific sin that's happening here, but there are some times, some instances, where you can give back what you took, where you can put back together what you broke. And in the cases where you don't, at the very least, you need to confess humanly to people and make things right humanly with people. Of course, the other party is on them to forgive you, but as far as it depends on you, you need to keep the peace with your brothers and sisters, with those that are with us in this camp, with us in this community. And so God is saying, for you to live in proximity to a holy God, you need to live in holy ways. And by living in holy ways, he means with one another. This is why you can't do online church. You just can't do it. You can watch a service, If it was sinful to watch a service, we wouldn't be streaming it right now. But you're not doing church. Sorry. Church is community. And community is being next to people. It's people watching you and you watching people. It's you offending somebody because you said something dumb and you having to come back and be like, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. That's community. It's never going to be perfect. But it always needs to be worked on. And restitution needs to be made to make things right. If there's something you have hanging and you haven't made it right, fix it now. You know, we read Scripture like, oh, God's kind of a scary God. Like we looked at last week, he's not safe. If you have the fear of the Lord in you, fix things with your brother and sister. Fix it. Because God's not cool with it. If he is this fearsome, awesome, glorious, holy God, if there's any sense of the fear of the Lord in us, We need to love each other, not just in word, but in action. We make it known that we care, that we love. And that might start with sensing your guilt in verse 6, 
in confessing your sin, verse 7. That takes verbal action. Well, he starts by saying, hey, look, there's such thing as unclean, but if you're in the camp, it means you live a certain way. Because you're close to me, because I dwell with you, you live a different way than you would have if I didn't dwell with you. And the prime way he's pointing to is how we live with one another. Then in his third move, he's talking about this horizontal relationship and how we live with one another. What is the highest example of it? What is the most pressure-cooked relationship, most difficult to maintain, the most riddled with I'm sorry's and hang-ups and mess-ups and disappointments, is marriage. It is the most intimate of relationships, and because it is the most intimate of relationships, it is sometimes the most problematic and the hardest. And so God goes after marriage and its purity in this last chunk, which takes up the bulk of chapter 5, but it comes to us in a form of a ritual that's really strange. It's a strange ritual. It's hard to kind of understand exactly what this would have been like. We don't have all the details that we would like to have. Some of it is a little bit lost on us culturally, but we have enough of it to see what God is intending to communicate here. And what he's communicating here, he's talking about within the marriage an instance of jealousy. And he's going to use this instance of jealousy to demonstrate his point, the ultimate point that he's trying to make about living in community with God. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you categories so as I read through it, you can kind of see what's going on here. It comes to us in four chunks. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. It lays out the case before us. Here's the situation. Here's the problem in verses 11 through 14. And then in verses 15 to 18, it gives them a ritual to do in case that problem happens. You got this problem? In verses 11 through 14, here's what you do, 15 to 18. It's a ritual. And then in verses 19 to 24, the person who's doing the ritual takes an oath and basically says, if I'm guilty, may I be cursed. If I'm innocent, may I be blessed. And that's 19 to 24. And then it goes back to the execution of the ritual. So it talked about what the ritual is in 15 to 18, then 25 to 28, they're doing the ritual. And then at the end, 29 to 31, it's summarizing the whole thing. Okay? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through it. I know it's a long chunk of text, but hopefully that's the kind of church we are where we're not afraid to read Scripture together. We're not here for Lucas' talking points. I want to read through Scripture, especially because this Scripture doesn't get fair play, man. This scripture gets left out, skipped over, unheard of, and unpreached. So I think that the least we can do is give it a few minutes. But I hope that you can track with the weirdness. And then we'll, after reading through it, I'll explain, uh, draw out some points to help us grapple with what God is doing here. Starting in verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, the husband, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, 
Then the, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Of a jealous husband, a wife that may or may not have actually done the act that he's jealous about. There was no witness. They weren't caught in the act. There's no proof, but he suspects it. She may have done it. She may not have done it. That's the situation. Verse 16. And the priest, here's the ritual. <clears throat> the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place her in the hands and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But, verse 20, if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. Just a couple quick notes here before we push through really quickly because I just want to read this whole thing and get it in front of us. But they're taking this dust from the floor of the tabernacle. This holy water represents God's presence and it's representing this possible uncleanness in the presence of God. And so you see how this relates exactly to the beginning of chapter 5. We still don't know whether she is or whether she isn't, but she's taking an oath. If I am guilty of this thing, this bitter water will cause my thigh to fall away, my body to swell, which is another way of saying you won't have babies anymore. But if you're innocent, nothing, this water won't do anything to you, and you will have babies, which, of course, this is, this is everything. This is your, this is your, uh, your life, your, this passing on of the seed family, the clan, the tribe. Verse 23, Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness, and he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, and afterward shall make the woman drink the water and when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, here's the recap, this is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. 
How's that for a Valentine's Day message? Put, put numbers five on your next Valentine's Day card. I love you, but don't forget. Well, this passage can rub us all kinds of wrong ways. And I, I do want to put some things out there for clarification. Because at first glance, especially in our society and in our time and in the hashtag MeToo movement, it looks like only women can be guilty of this. And we're dragging women off to court and we're going to drink this bitter pain if you're the adulteress. Well, what if guys are the cheaters? Well, again, this is where it helps us to remember if you go back to the first few verses, are there other ways to be unclean? Yeah. If you go to verses 5 through 10, are there other ways to hurt people? Ways that don't, there is no way to restitute, to make restitution? Yeah. Well, is there other cases of adultery? Yeah. Because in all three instances in chapter 5, these things are not comprehensive, they're representative. This does not mean that God doesn't care about what a guy does. This does not mean that God doesn't care about what, what people do before marriage. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care if the woman murders somebody. He only cares if she sleeps around. See, this is not comprehensive. It's representative. And what we have to ask ourselves is, what is it representing? Of all the things that God could talk about, why did he pick this one? So that's the first thing we need to think about. Second thing is, we think, wow, this really seems to pick on women. Well, no, it protects women. Because in a society where husbands can put away their wives and then she's got nothing. She's got nothing. She can't just go downtown and go get a job at some firm. Husband leaves you, you got nothing. Well, if the husband leaves her, he better know what's going on. Well, I don't have proof, but I have rights as a husband. Well, without proof, what do you do? Does she have to stick it out in a marriage where the guy is just a constant jealous freak? Well, this is a way out. They bring her before. She drinks the water. She's fine. She continues to have kids. She drinks the water. It didn't hurt. No pain. Then what? Dude, shut up. That's what. Leave her alone. Also, in a time where you don't have cameras, DNA tests, paternity tests, and that kind of stuff, this was a miraculous God intervention in large part to protect women from false accusation. Of course, if the woman is guilty, God isn't like, well, you know, let's just give her a pass because she's a woman. Well, no, it needs to be dealt with. And I'll remind you, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, when a couple is caught in the act, there's none of this stuff. They both get executed. So then we go, wow, that's really harsh. I could see executing a serial killer, but marital unfaithfulness? Well, that's not God's problem. It's the problem of our low view of marriage. For those of you heading into marriage, those of you that are in marriage, take a big gulp and recognize this is not an American institution. This is not a Disney World fairy tale castle. This is a God word covenant that He takes seriously. And so our view of marriage has to rise up to the seriousness with which Scripture treats marriage. Why? 
because God treats community seriously. He cares how we treat one another. And when two people stand at the altar and say, I do, I do, we're saying, you're going to be the best of what I have to offer any other human being. I have to love everybody, but you're going to be the prime example of my love to somebody else. Even when you're sick, even when you're old, even when you disappoint me, even when we have problems, even when there's trouble, I will love you. Why? Because that's holiness. That's why. To drop somebody, to cancel them, even your own spouse, it's wicked. And the reason why it's wicked is because God is not like that. And if you're going to live in proximity to me, you will view marriage a certain way. That's why he chooses this. It's not because it's the worst sin that you can think of. It's because it represents something that God is trying to communicate about living in relationship to him. This is not a Salem's witch trial where you just throw women in water and if they float, they're, they're a witch. They sink, they're not a witch or probably I reversed it. It's stupid. This is not magic. This is God taking it out of the hands of ignorant, dumb people <laughs> and saying, I'm going to step in for her and make it obvious that she's innocent so all you guys can shut up. But if she's not, if he is onto something, I also point out he doesn't have to bring her before them. It's his option. But in that case, he does ask the woman, he requires that the woman say this oath, and I think of uh, some episode of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where he says, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. Right? If you're innocent, you've got nothing to worry about. And this isn't about rape. That's another category. She's willingly doing this. The husband has his suspicions brings her before the Lord, but you see all this holy water, dust from the tabernacle, the altar, the atonement stuff, communicates to you that there's something going on here more than just counseling a a rough marriage. But that God is using this as an example to communicate His marriage to His people. That's why this is, that's what's at stake in the symbolism. That's what this passage is representing. It's not comprehensive of everything, but it's representing that truth that God is in a holy relationship with his people and he demands covenant faithfulness. And if marriage is a picture of God's marriage to his people, then we need to make sure that that picture represents what it's supposed to represent. For those passages, you can turn to places like Hosea 1 and 2 where God makes it clear that marriage is that picture. Passages throughout Ezekiel and Jeremiah where God makes it clear that he keeps referring to his people as his bride And when they are not faithful to him, they are an unfaithful bride. You think of Mark 2 and the other gospel writers who make it clear that Jesus is the bridegroom that Israel has been waiting for. You think of Ephesians 5 where Paul says, I know you talk about marriage, you think about marriage, but I'm telling you marriage refers to Christ and the church. This is a mystery and it's profound, but I tell you that's what it refers to. Well, Paul isn't this profound, but he's not making it up. He reads his Old Testament. And he understands when he gets to Numbers 5 that this isn't just about marriage. And this isn't just, you know what, Moses? Women are going to be real cheaty and guys are going to be real jealous. Which one is it? Well, let's figure it out. Well, it is a helpful tool for them and it does protect women from a Salem witch trial craziness. But what God is really communicating is that marriage is a picture of covenant faithfulness and when it is broken, 
it needs to be dealt with severely. Why? Because when we break fellowship with God, we do that to severe consequence. That's why God is serious about marriage. That's why this takes such a large portion of chapter 5. That's why it talks about bitterness and, and holy water and her bearing iniquity in verse 31. All of those things are communicating how serious God is about covenant relationship with himself. And so what God does to protect the purity of marriage, he protects the purity of marriage to show that he wants to protect the purity of our relationship to himself. So God exposes the difficulties of living in relationship to him. The fact that we need Levites and we need a barrier and we need holy water and there needs to be a tent but a veil to separate. There needs to be executions for people who just sort of traipse in on God's holy presence and we need to deal severely with marital unfaithfulness. Why? Because for me to dwell with my people, there has to be covenant faithfulness. And marriage represents that. So what are some applications that we can draw from a passage like this? Why shouldn't we skip past this when we're reading through the Bible? Why should we hang out here and unpack it and take notes and live it? Why should Numbers 5 make it onto some of our uh, encouraging notes that we send to one another? Well, it's because it has high applicational value. We can start from the top and move more specifically as it does. It starts broad on cleanness and then moves to specific acts of sin within community and then it gets real specific with marriage. And as we think about uncleanness in general, we think about our unworthiness and we think about how our only hope is to cling to Christ, that He takes our disease. We cannot inject ourselves with our own antidote. That we need something foreign to ourselves to fix this problem. We can't just make ourselves unleprous. You can't lift the disease off yourself. You need a healing touch. We're blind, we're deaf, we're dead, we're diseased. And Jesus Christ is that hope. As you move a little more specifically, we think about our responsibilities toward one another. And how some of us are afraid to get into community with people because we've been hurt by people before and we're afraid to get in community with people because we're just too prideful to say I'm sorry and if I get in relationships with people, I'm going to have to say I'm sorry because I know I'm a jerk and I just, it's just better to just kind of pop in and out of church and not really make friendships and we're missing the point and we're missing the beauty of reconciliation. Doesn't mean we hurt each other on purpose. That doesn't mean we just give ourselves a free pass. Like, oh, we, we're just we're supposed to just forgive each other anyway. So we're just bull in a china shop, just hurting each other's feelings. No. We recognize sometimes we're gonna be hurtful, and sometimes we're gonna say something or do something that is offensive to somebody else. And we need to be able to make those things right. Because on the other side of that is reconciliation. Right? And that's how God's relationship is with us. He doesn't choose to be in relationship with people that have never done anything wrong. He chooses to be in relationship with people who have to be forgiven. And so that forgiveness is the bridge to a better relationship. People ask, why did God create a world where there is so much sin and there's so much destruction and there's so much distance between us and him? God, in his wisdom, saw that the world would be a better place with forgiveness than no sin. Think about that. Before the foundation of the world, the cross was already set. He knows man is going to sin. He knows man is going to rebel. And he knows he's going to send his son to fix it and that he would get more glory 
by being in relationship with an, a forgiven people than he would if he was in a relationship with people who never needed forgiveness. Is that profound? Yeah, we'll be unpacking that for eternity. That certainly doesn't give us the pass to do what we can to keep ourselves away from possible hang-ups with people by detaching. I mean, who are your friends? Can somebody, I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were, there's anybody in here who could, who could honestly say, I really don't have friends. Or are you that off-putting, or do you just not give people a chance? And some of us need to give other people a chance on us, knowing like, yeah, I'm going to have egg on my face. I'm going to have to own up to it sometimes. That's okay. The relationships after reconciliation are stronger relationships than the relationships that sort of just mitigate against it by never getting close. God doesn't do that, and we're not supposed to do that. So we enjoy community and all of its messiness and all of its hang-ups and all of its ups and downs. We, we seek friendships, and we seek togetherness, not with people that we think are most perfect, but with those that we call brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, as we think about marriage, uh, <clears throat> again, those of you who are in marriage, this is where you are. Those of you who are contemplating marriage, you don't have to get married, but if you do get married, it's not a command to get married, but if you do get married, this is what we're dealing with. In, in our marriages, we need to zealously protect marital fidelity. Some of you have been hurt or saddened deeply by the news about Ravi Zacharias. I say the name because it's all over the place. It's in your news feed. Churches are chatting about it. It's, in, it's on Facebook. It's everywhere. And this apologist, this eloquent apologist who'd stand and defend the faith, uh, with all this evidence coming out about his marital, serial marital unfaithfulness, reminds us of a couple of things. One, maybe a little less related to this particular text, but I do want to say it anyway because it's on our hearts and minds now. Um, we need to be careful about celebrating, lionizing, adoring people we don't know. What church did he go to? Was he an elder? Was he a pat? Like, no, he's a face on YouTube. And this is why, as churches move into this tech era, and pastors can just be a face on a screen, and we can kind of detach ourselves not only from community, but from the actual personal life of the pastor up there, that's a danger, and that's a problem. You can have your favorite authors and your favorite books, but you need a pastor in your life, and Ravi wasn't your pastor. Secondly, and more importantly, or more uh, germane to the passage that we are having, uh, have in front of us here, we need to be on guard in a way that matches the fierceness with which God treats marital infidelity. If you were as scared as they were to be maritally unfaithful, they, they would face execution if they're caught. Worst case, no evidence, but the suspicion is proven by drinking the bitter water. No more babies. Your womb is collapsed. That kind of bitter, painful consequence for marriage our view of marital purity has to match that zeal and that fierceness and my recommendation 
is that maybe some of us need to step up our accountability. Are you upset if your wife looks at your texts? You should give her the phone to look at your texts as regularly as needed. Do you have access to marital infidelity on your laptop, on your iPad, on your TV? We don't have cable anymore. I remember when I had cable, the first thing I did was give Tina the remote, put a code in there. Do I feel like a child sometimes? Like, hon, I'd like to watch the Red Sox. Oh, let me go put in the code. Beep, bop, boop. Oh, thanks, honey. Do I feel like a child? Yes. Why do I do that? Because I'm a sinner. And it's not because I'm addicted to things and I'm not embroiled in it. I don't want to be. And I don't ever want to be in the place where unclean, that's those people outside the camp. Marital infidelity, that's Ravi Zacharias. That'll never be me. That's the first step toward being that. So my recommendation, I can't quote you a scripture for it, but what I do is point to the gravity of something like Numbers 5, the the weight of something like Numbers 5, and the, I don't know, the frivolous ways in which we handle and compose ourselves. We say things like, well, We should be able to have friends of the opposite sex. Yeah, you can have friends of the opposite sex, but I'm going to tell you, don't be alone together. Don't be out of view from other people together. Because that's how it starts. That's where the door opens. Many people will say, well, um, and I talk about this a lot, especially in ministry. Um, The Billy Graham rule, right, of never being alone with someone of the opposite sex, or out of view, or out of sight, at the very least. Some people take that to be disrespectful toward women, and I've heard this, it's like, it's like you're, you have such a low view of women, they're, all they are to you is possible marital infidelity, they're all possible adulteresses. No, I'm the possible adulterer, and I'm protecting women. It's me, it's not them. Oh, it always takes two, of course. But I'm not thinking, what's this woman like? I'm not going to meet with her in person. I'm like, what could I possibly be like? Let me stay above reproach. So if you have some habit or space in your life to be alone with someone who's the opposite sex, is not your spouse, and you drive places together, you meet places together, you're behind closed doors together, It's going to be awkward. I'll tell you that right now. I'm at the house. Someone comes over. Tina's not home yet. What do I do? Get out. Come on in. You know, if the kids aren't home or something, leave. It's going to get awkward, and there's going to be times where somebody feels offended because you're sticking to this rule. But I tell you, if you lived in a time where Numbers 5 was what was at stake, you would do that. When we get lax in protecting our marriages, that's when we leave the doors open to problems. Get serious about it. If there are even small ways in which your marital faithfulness is cracking, kill it now. The girl at work that you think is pretty cute and you're just trying to convince yourself you don't think so, go talk to another dude about that. Because this isn't games. Marriage is serious not because of how serious you took your vows. You may have been kidding around when you took your vows. Too bad. 
You're in marriage now, and God views it as something that is serious. Why? Because it reminds us of our covenant relationship with Him and what He does to dwell with His unfaithful people. We come away from this text not just going, man, we are often unfaithful. That's true. But we also come away from this reeling from the fact that God is always faithful. No matter how adulterous we've been, no matter how unclean we've been, He makes a way to be in relationship with us. And whatever failings we have as His bride, they, they stand in contrast to His persistent, constant, pure faithfulness toward his people. And we can thank God for that. doesn't ask us to do something he doesn't first do. He is faithful relentlessly, even if we're unfaithful. I want to ask the worship team to come forward, and as we close in this song, we want to leave here with God's blessing. We've been reading the, uh, Aaron's blessing at the end of chapter 6 as we close our services. And we're going to sing that today. We want to leave with God's blessing, not because we perform so well, but because he performed so well, because he is so faithful, and he will give you what you need to be faithful to your spouse, to your community, and ultimately to the Lord. Fathers, we sing the song, would you give us grace, allow our hearts to rise up to the lyrics, and may we leave here sensing that you are blessing your people to live in faithful ways, to reflect your pure, undeserved faithfulness toward us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close together?